for what you have done for us. Uh, Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. I'll try to keep my voice, I don't know what, 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 how to call it, bellowy, so that you could hear me. Um, I, think, I think you all could hear me, yes? Yes? Yes, in the back there? Coming, you're good? Yeah, he's, he's good, he's good. All right, so turn your Bibles to Hebrews 10. We're going to be studying Hebrews 10 today, ver- and we're going to be starting in verse 19. Hebrews 10, verse 19. And I want to share with you a principle that, um, that you're all probably familiar with. It's a principle that has been used by uh, the, the French during the French Revolution. It is used by Winston Churchill. And it is known as the Peter Parker Principle. Uh, I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about. Peter Parker Principle, principle says, with great power come great responsibility. Now, even though Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, is not the one who originally used that, um, I, I think he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a fun illustration to look at. He's a high school kid that got superpowers, like super strength. Uh, he could stick on walls. Uh, he has something called a spidey sense, which I don't completely understand, but I'm not going to get into it here. Um, and instead of using his powers to take on bullies at school, instead of being a... Some, some punk teenage kid and using it for uh, to impress girls or something. He uses his powers to fight off some pre- pretty serious villains. And, 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 you know, he fights off these villains and saves the city, saves the city from destruction. That is someone who has great power and with great power takes that great responsibility. Now, I want to imagine got a superhero who, who has these powers or s- similar powers and... Um, and he doesn't quite realize what he has. So uh, imagine a superhero that has, that has superhuman strength. And the only time he summons his superhuman strength is to open a jar from his wife. Uh, or, or maybe he runs at the speed of light. But that would require running, and, and running's the worst, so, so no, no speed of light for him. Or he can make fire come out of his palms, but the only time he makes fire comes out of his palms is to scare off his, his daughter's girlfriend, which is what I would be using it for if I had that power. So not exactly, right, someone who has great power and uses that great power for great responsibility. Um, you know, and, and I don't think it will make a great movie if you just saw this guy and he, he was using the, these powers for not so great things. Um, and if it was a movie, you would eventually want him to start using his powers. There would be a point in the movie where you're, you're just screaming at the screen and saying, come on, use those powers. Those people need help. And, uh, and we would want him to use those powers to help. To, he, we would want him to use those powers to act. Now, kind of a, a, a ridiculous illustration, <laughs> um, but I think something similar can happen to us as Christians, that you know, we, we believe in the power of the cross. We, we believe in the power of forgiveness. But the privileges that we have in the gospel, the privileges we have in Christ, are, are so extensive. And when you understand the immense and amazing privileges you have in the gospel, you will be moved to act. You wouldn't be like this superhero who doesn't use his powers. You'd be moved to act. And that's what we're looking at in this passage. As we read this passage this morning, as we look at the confidence, as we look at the security that we, uh, that's offered to us in the work of Christ, 
I want you to, to gaze upon his faithfulness. I want you to, to look at our high priest who intercedes with you, who intercedes on your behalf before the Father. And I, and I want you to be, be prepared to respond. Be prepared to act. Because these great truths, these, these great realities of the gospel demand that you act. You must act. So this is where we're looking at in our passage. Hebrews 10 starting in verse 19. I'm going to read now through verse 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed and, uh, with pure water. Let us hold fast, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, we look at this passage, and, and Lord, there's such great truth here, Father. I pray, Lord, that as we work through it, as we, as we go through it verse by verse, that we would be encouraged by, by, by the immense privilege we have in the gospel. And Lord, I pray now that for everyone here listening, for everyone on the live stream, Lord, that you would use this time to, to move their hearts to act. Lord, that you, you, would, uh, you would minister to all our hearts, Lord, and that we would leave here ready to act, not, not just for our own good, Lord, but for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. When we come to uh, this passage, this passage in, in verse 19 to 25 is actually one long sentence in the Greek, right? and that happens a couple times in the New Testament. Uh, you can think of Ephesians 1, long, long sentence there. So there's one long sentence in the Greek, and the first part of that sentence gives us our privilege in Christ. So we're going to look at the privilege of Christ in the first part of that sentence, and then we're going to look at the second part of that sentence, which, which exhorts us to action. So we have the privileges and the action. And the big idea that we're leading up here, here in this passage has been, or the, the big idea that the writer has been leading to, has been that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system laid out in the Old Testament. And his sacrifice is so much more than the blood of bulls and goats could ever do. Now, I, I, want, you to, I want you to think about who this written. This is written to second century, or sec we can say second generation uh, Jewish believers. And as a, as, a, uh, as a Jewish reader, you would know and be familiar to what the Old Testament teaches. You know that there is, that direct access to God is not available to you. God is in the Holy of Holies within the temple, and you cannot access that. Even th the priests cannot access that. Only one priest could access that one time, uh, one time a year. So God is, the being in the presence of God is off limits. Not only that, but you know that God requires sacrifices. The Old Testament lays out pretty clearly that if 
if you have sinned and everyone has sinned, even the Old Testament lays that out, all has sinned, that requires a sacrifice. Blood must be spilt. Someone must take God's wrath for you. And so in, in the Old Testament system, in the sacrificial system, year after year, animals are sacrificed in the temple, and animal after animal are slaughtered to make some payment for, for your sin. You, you need something to assuage that guilt of sin. That's, that's the mind of the Jewish reader right now. But then somebody comes along and tells you that those sacrifices that you've been offering are ineffectual. That, the, that, is Im, that it is impossible for the blood of goats, for the blood of bulls to take away sins. And there has been one sufficient sacrifice made by a man named Jesus, the Lamb of God who came and t- takes away the sins of the world. He paid your sins on the cross, and if you would just believe, your sins will be wiped away forever. And this is what the book of Hebrews does. This is what the, the book of Hebrews li- lays out, that the sacrifice of Jesus is better. And, and it just lays out the power of the, gro- of the cross, lays out the gospel. But what's amazing about our passage here is that it, it, it not only stops there. Yes, we have forgiveness in, the, in, in Christ, but that forgiveness completely changes our relationship with God. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and because of who Christ has done. And this is what we see in our passage, that uh, the, the, the writer is going to take these truths that he's been laying out for the previous chapters and condense them into these great privileges that we have in Christ and use that to call us to action. So let's look at the first privilege that we have here. The first privilege we see in verse 19. So read with me. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. So the writer, which, which some people believe to be Paul, although we're, we're not quite sure of that, it's, it's the, the, the writer um, is, is unknown with, with all certainty. We, we can't say we know the, the writer. But the writer being moved by the Holy Spirit gives us the first pl- privilege that we have in Christ, and that's confident access to God. Now, a Jewish reader would, would be astonished at this. This would be, be mind-blowing. Um, to, have, to, to have that full confidence to enter the holy place. Well, there's only one person, like I said, could enter the holy place, and that's the priest on the Day of Atonement. And even then, th- the priest could not enter with full confidence. He entered with fear. Men have died because of coming before the Lord in a, in a, in a way that is not honoring to him. But we, we can confidently enter? And the answer to that is yes. Now, I want to say one thing about this confidence. It is not a subjective feeling. It's not, the feel, it's not that you wake up one day and you feel confident in yourself to come before the Lord. This confidence is objective in nature. It's, it's saying that you, you have that freedom to enter the presence of God. You can confidently enter because that access has been granted to you. It's not dependent on how you're feeling. It's not dependent on how good your week was. It is something that is granted to you. It's an amazing privilege that we have there. And that, that reminds me when I was a kid. My, uh, my dad worked in the movie industry. And when I was a kid, he would take me to work, and I'd get so excited because that means I get to be on a movie set. And um, so we would, we'd pull up to the movie set. The movie set 
let's uh, um, many times they were filming on location, so they'll be they'll be taking up a street. The street would be barricaded. There would be security guards, and we pull up to that barricade where we park nearby, and, and we walk up to that barricade, and and my dad doesn't think twice of it. He's going to work. He's going to cross over that barricade and just enter into work. So here I am with my dad. Here's this barricade, um, and he says, "Let's just let's just keep going." So. I walk through the barricade. I look at the security guard and kind of give him like a little <laughs> hi, and and he just gives me a nod like okay, just keep going. <laughs> um, it, I was able to walk into a place that was blocked off to everybody else, and not because I was some, uh, I certainly wasn't some famous kid actor. Um, I wasn't definitely I could not charm my way into anything, much less a movie set. The reason why I was able to confidently walk walk across those barriers into that movie set is simply because of the fact of who my dad is, because I'm his son. That is something that I did not earn. That is something that is objectively true, and that objective fact gave me access. Well, this is the same true. This is the same thing is true for our access to God. We have access because of an objective, because of a verifiable truth. You know, look at, look at the reason in verse 19. It says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, how is it that we enter that confidence? By the blood of Jesus. The verse says it is by the blood of Jesus. You can look back at the historic events of Jesus dying on the cross, where your, where your sin was paid for, where, your, the, where the sacrifice was made on your behalf, and you can look back at that and point to that and say, that's why I'm able to come before God. That's why I will always have access to the Father. Now think about, just for a moment, what that means in your, in, your, in your life, week to week. What this objective character of confidence means for you. That means you could approach God at any time. Any time. It could be the moment you've fallen into sin, yet again. And you could approach God at that moment. It could be immediately after a horrible week of being, of being a, a selfish spouse or being an angry parent. You could approach God at that very moment because your, your, your confidence to enter God does not depend on you. Because Jesus died on the cross, that means you can come before God. That means you can go before God and confess your sin. And it means separation from God is never, is never a reality for the believer. There's no such thing for, for of separation from God for a believer. Now look at the, what this writer talks about. He's going to say that what, what is the means of access? How do we have that access? And verse 20, he explains that. So by the blood of Jesus, but by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now this is a comparison to the, to the old way, to the covenantal system. Okay, uh, uh, and in and, and the book of Hebrews, he's been laying this out. I mean, he's been laying it on thick. Uh, go, go to just earlier in verse 10, look at uh, verse 3. In verse 3, he says, But in those sacrifices, and the sacrifices made um, in the Old Testament system in, in, the, in the temple by human hands, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Okay, so that's what those sacrifices did. There's a reminder of sin. But go to the next verse there, verse 4 in chapter 10. So it's a reminder of sin, for it is impossible 
It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those sacrifices that you read in the Old Testament, they have a purpose. I don't want to say they don't have a purpose. The purpose is to remind us that we need a sacrifice for our sins. Something has to pay for our sins. But he goes on to the, in, in, the, in the next verse, the reason why he says, for it is impossible, he, is that he's telling you the reason why it is only a reminder, and that's it. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls to take away sins. You need something else. You need something new. You need something alive. This is the old way. This is the dead way. It is ineffective. So the, the writer of Hebrews lays out this new way. Look at verse, look at, jump down to verse 9. He lays out this new way. So and he, it says here that Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will. So Jesus takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And look at this, once for all. Verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which ne can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all, for all time, sat down at the right hand of the Father, sat on the right hand of God, waiting for the from that time onward until his enemies be made a, a footstool for his feet. Now you compare that way to the old way. There's power there. And, and, and we're not just looking at a dead animal. We're looking at a living Savior who came and died for his sins and rose again. This is how we are able to go through the veil. You guys aren't familiar with the veil. The veil is what separates the Holy of Holies, that inner temple where, where, where God's presence resides, what separates that from, from everyone else. That when that veil was there, there was that the, the, the creation, man and woman, were separated from their creator. And, and it, that veil was not there because God wanted to be distant. That's not the reason for the veil. The veil was there is because, because of our own sinfulness. In our own sinfulness we, can, in sinfulness, we cannot come into the presence of God. But now we entered through the veil, through the sacrifice of Christ. We walked through his torn flesh, and we entered into the holy place of God. We have complete and confident access to God. This is the first amazing privilege that, that, that the writer lays out, that you have confident access. But, but the, it doesn't stop there. The, the writer gives us yet another privilege. Look at verse 21. We have the privilege of having a, a great priest, an advocate. Verse 21 says, And since, so the, the, this is kind of building off the therefore in verse 19. And therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, and then he gives again, and since we have a great high priest, he gives us another reason. We have a great high, uh, a great priest over the house of God. Now, again, we have to go back to the Jewish system to understand this. The priest... Like I said, he could walk into the Holy of Holies once a year, but when he walked into the Holy of Holies, he was acting as a representative of the people. He was coming to God on the behalf of the people. Now, he would only do this once a year, and he would do this with a, he would walk in with, with the blood of sacrifice, with the blood of an animal, which is, which is ineffective, like we talked about. Now, Hebrews tells us that we have a priest, and it is a much greater priest that this priest, Jesus Christ, he offered himself on our behalf, but his sacrifice was perfect. But not only that, 
Our Savior does not have to go into the Holy Holies and then walk out. Our Savior is right now before the Father, before the throne of God, and is interceding on our behalf. Now, I think this gives us a different, uh, um, I don't say different spin, but a, a different angle to look at our salvation. I mean, you can look at your salvation and say, yes, Christ died once and for all. And that's true. But our salvation isn't restricted to that time. It's not a static salvation. Let me show you what I mean by this. Go to chapter 7 in Hebrews. Just, just a couple pages back. And we're going to read verse 23. I want you to pay attention what our salvation depends on. It does depend on sacrifice, but it depends on us having a, a, a high priest. It depends on us uh, uh, having someone to come before God on our, on, uh, on our behalf. Okay, so look at verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, ex existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Okay, so they died. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever... He holds his priesthood permanently. Now look at what this means for you. Therefore, he is able also, because he is a hol holding that priesthood permanently, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God. We need not only a perfect sacrifice, but we need a, a, a high priest who is before God interceding for us. He provides access to, to God because he is ever before God. Now again, let's bring that to this morning. Let's bring that to last night. You sinned this morning, you sinned last night. Because Christ is your priest before God forever, you can confess your sins and be forgiven. Think of 1 John 2. 1 John 2, if, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is a propitiation, he, is, he satisfies, our, our, he is a satisfaction for our sins. We need that advocacy, we need someone before God, and we have that in Christ. We need Jesus as our high priest, even though we, we're not accustomed to the high priest, that is not part of our our upbringing, but we need him there. He provides access to the Father through his sacrifice, and he is constantly interceding, constantly strengthening us, constantly encouraging us. Here, here's another really practical point of application. I'm, we're not going to go there, but it, it, write down Hebrews 2.17. Hebrews 2.17. It tells us there that Jesus is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted because guess what? He is also man. He also has been tempted, but tempted without sin. And because he has been tempted, because he is man, because he is our high priest, he will minister to us as our faithful and merciful high priest. So I don't want you to, to take this, this high priest and just, and just see it as some, some abstract uh, theological um, uh, truth there. It, 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 means it has real application to your life now. So we have confident access to God. That's our first privilege. And our second privilege is that we have a faithful advocate with Christ. So confident access to God and, a fa and faithful advocacy. Now I want you to meditate on those truths. And, let, and, and during the week, let your roots run deep into that soil. And you let your roots run deep and you're going you're gonna to see your growth in, in grace. 
you're going to see a growth in your actions. And so the writer sees that. The writer then calls us to ask. And that's what he's going to do in the, in the rest of this passage, going back to, to chapter 10. In the rest of this passage, he gives us three imperatives to a- for action. Three imperatives that is a result of these privileges. Let's look at the first action. First action in verse 22. Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and in full assurance of faith. The, the writer commands us to draw near in faith. Now we have access to the presence of God, so we could go to Him. We could seek Him in prayer. We could come before Him and worship at His feet. And, and the writer actually mentioned this earlier. Uh, back in chapter 4, um, I'll read it to you guys. If you want to turn there, you can. Chapter 4, verse 14, the writer says, Therefore, since we have a great, what was that? A great high priest. Okay, so there's that coming back. Uh, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, lets us hold fa- let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And look at the result of that high, of having a high priest. Look at the result. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. You know, the reality of the access to God, the, re- the reality of, of having an advocacy should bring us to our knees in prayer. We should be able to approach the throne of God, uh, not just confidently, but constantly. Not out of compulsion, but out of joy of, of, of having our burdens of sin being lifted up, being cast, down, cast on, on, on the sacrifice of Christ. And I, and I think sometimes we take prayer for granted. I think sometimes prayer becomes something we do in the morning, something we do before meals, something we do at church. But, but take a moment there. And realize the reality of that act. When you pray, there's a reality behind that. You're relying on the high priest, on Jesus Christ, bringing you before the throne of grace. And because he is, he is faithful, and because his sacrifice is sufficient, you're going to receive that grace. You're gonna, you could go before the, the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace. So don't don't take prayer for granted. Don't, don't, and this is true for, for any aspect of our spiritual life. Don't detach the eternal reality from the, from the daily practice of your faith. Draw near to God daily. Now the writer expands on this by describing the manner. How do, how do we draw near? We, it's not, he doesn't just give us the action. He gives us how to do it. He says, draw near with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith. Okay, now let's think about what faith means. Uh, let's just think about faith a moment. Let's think about faith. Faith has to start with a felt need. Right? It has to start with the, you need something, and you need to trust in something to meet that need. Um, I'm assuming you've all drove here. I don't think anyone walked here. Um, if you drove here, you had a felt need in the morning. You had to get to church. And so you got jumped in your car, you turned on the car, you trusted that all the, com- all the combustions going on in your car, and, and I think you all know that there are explosions inside your car. Yes? Okay, hopefully you knew that. Um, so you don't get scared when you turn on your car. Um, the explosions in your car is contained and used to help you move. So you're trusting the car to, to get that need. 
And I think in the same way, we draw near to God because we are trusting in Christ to provide our need. We, we trust in Christ to provide our need for forgiveness. And look how the writer puts our need. He, he, he's very specific in our need. Look at it in verse 22, the end of verse 22. Having our, this is our need right here. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You should feel a need of being cleansed from the guilt of your sin. Your conscience bears witness to that. You should feel the need of being made pure before God. And what can meet that need other than what Christ has inaugurated here, other than what Christ has set up? We look to Christ, we see that the, the, the blood that was, that was spilt for us, the sacrifice that he made, and we could draw near to God because of that. He meets our need there. Now you have to trust God, trust Christ to meet your need, and that comes with a sincere heart. You, you need to come to Christ with no ulterior motive. You need to have it with full assurance. That is a, a certainty of faith. But it, it must be more than just a, to realize that Christ is the answer. To realize that Christ is the answer is not enough for faith. You must commit to Christ. You must commit, just like you committed to your car, right? You went in your car, stepped on the gas, igniting gas into those explosions or fueling your explosions, and, and, the, and the car, you trusted the car to drive you, so you must trust in Christ and step in Christ. You must fully trust Christ and act and act on that trust. So this is how we are to draw near to God. And I, and, uh, and I ask you to draw near to God this week. Draw near to God today. Be intentional. Look at the privileges that you have. You have access to, to God in Christ. You have a, an advocate, a merciful and faithful high priest. So why wouldn't you go to prayer? Why wouldn't you come to God and, and worship? Why wouldn't you read the scriptures? And I want to speak specifically to those of you who may be suffering right now. I want you to remember his faithfulness to you, that even now, if you're feeling alone, if, if you're feeling that your, your suffering has, has continued, Christ has not forsaken you. He is your merciful and faithful high priest. He calls to you to come to his presence and rest. If you feel the weight of sin, you could humbly come before the throne of grace. And your confession of sin will be met with forgiveness, will be met with cleansing of righteousness. And if you feel tempted or burdened, just know that our great high priest personally knows your struggle. He knows exactly how to help you. Those privileges that we have in the gospel calls us to draw near to God. And so we do. We draw near to God, and the writer goes on and gives us yet another action. Another action in verse 23, to persevere in hope. This is our next action that we see in verse 23. So first is to draw near in faith, and now we see persevere in hope. Now let me just ask an honest question. Can a Christian lose hope? Does that happen? And I will say it does. I'll say there are times where Christians have been discouraged. Christians have been depressed on what is going on around them, depressed on what's going on in the country, depressed on what's going on in their lives, feeling burdened. Christians can lose hope. 
And I, I think if you look at the readers of this book, the, the, the audience that's reading this book sent by the writer, you will see that they're facing some discouraging times. These, these, these Jewish people, these Jewish believers were being threatened and they were being persecuted. You, later on in chapter 10, you read that they were losing property and that they were being made public spectacles of. So, yeah, you have some believers here losing hope. But look at the writer calls them. The writer calls them back. The writer tells them to hold on to that confession of hope. Now, just think about what hope is. We talked about what faith is. Think about what hope is. Hope is faith put in the future, right? And there's a strong connection between faith and hope. Look at, look at chapter 11, first verse of chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of what? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You take what you have faith in now, whatever that is, take what you have faith in now and put it into the future. Put it in terms of expectation. That's hope. We have faith in Christ. Put it to the future. What do you expect of that? What, what, what does having confident access, what does having an advocate before God, what does that mean about tomorrow? It means that you will always be with him. It means that you will always be in his presence, that you will never be apart from him, and eventually you will be with him in perfect fellowship. That future is secured. It is set. It is something that we could hold fast to. Not, not because it is something that we are securing for ourselves, right? but it is, it, it is something secured for us. And, and just look how emphatic the writer is. He says, hold fast to that confession of hope without wavering. Without wavering is to stay the course because we know God's will for us, because we know that God is faithful that God will keep his promise. So how does this look like? You know, I don't, it's one thing to say, hold fast. Like, you know, I, I, if someone says, I'm having a hard time, Sergio, and I say, well, just hold fast, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> no, that's not exactly encouraging. How do we persevere in hope? How does that look like? Now, I'm going to list out a couple passages. You guys could, could just write down. We're not going to turn there because we're, we're running out of time here. We could hold fast in hope in our evangelism. Right, write, write down 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, Always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. And someone's going to ask you what you believe. What does it mean to hold fast in hope? It means that you share with them the faith you have and how that translates to hope for them. That translates to hope for you. I'll give you another one. Romans 15, 4. Romans 15, 4. It says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. You know how you hold fast? You stay in the Word. You go to the Word of God, and you immerse yourself in the Word of God. And one last one, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. It says, we hope when we grieve. We could hope when we grieve. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. 
And here's why we don't grieve like those who don't have hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if that is true, if we believe that, we have faith in that, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. We hold fast to that hope. It's not because we are strong. Look how, the, look how the writer ends verse 23. We hold fast for he who promised is faithful. It is because of his faithfulness to us. So we see that we are to draw near in faith. We are to persevere in hope. And our last action for our passage, we are to encourage in love. Look at verse 24. We are to encourage in, uh, in love. Verse 24 says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The, the Christian life is not a, a solo mission. Um, it, it, it requires fellowship with believers and sisters in Christ. I mean, Jesus says in John 13, uh, John 13, 35, people will know you're my disciples. How? Well, by, by how you love one another. Loving the church is a crucial part of being Christian. Uh, I, I, I want to put it this way. The appreciation that you have for the blood of Christ should match the love that you have for the bride of Christ. That needs to be something true in your life. And I'll venture to say that if you do not have a love for the bride of Christ, a love for the church, you need to look at your own salvation. It's that strong. That's, this is how imperative it is. Now, if we go back to our passage here, this whole passage is highlighting the fellowship that we have as believers. Look how many times in that passage it uses the word we or it uses the word us. Right? In this passage is not like you're on your own, draw near to God on your own. You're on your own, hope in God on your own. No, it's always let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. In verse 24. Now think of that, that word consider is to reflect on, is to think about. Right? So he's saying, so think about, reflect on, be intentional on how to stimulate one another. And even that word for stimulate is a very strong verb. Um, that word is, is used just a couple other places, both in the, negative tr in the negative sense. If you go to Acts 17, in Acts 17, you see Paul is in, is in Athens. He sees the idol worship in Athens, and he is provoked, as it's translated, provoked to action. He sees the idols and is provoked to action. Well, uh, this is the same verb here, that we are to, to stimulate, that we are to, I, I would say, kindly provoke. All right, I don't want you guys yelling at each other like, how come you're not loving? Okay, that's, that's not what provoke, what, what I'm getting at. All right, but it is, it is something that you do as strongly as how Paul did when he reacted to the idols, when he, when he was provoked by those idols. We are to kindly provoke each other to action. Now, when does, it, when does that take place? Well, verse 25, it takes place when we get together, when we assemble together. And we assemble together for the purposes of what? It says there in verse 25, for, the encur for encouraging one another. So, so this passage here, I, I don't like it when I hear people use this passage and talk about 
that you need to attend church, and, and they stop there. This passage is not simply saying, show up at church. Because look, it says, for we, we do not forsake the assembling, but we gather together for, the, for encouraging one another, for pro- provoking each other to love and good deeds. If you're coming to church and you, you are not in, involved in the one another's, then you're not doing this verse. It has to be, you're, you're coming to church for the encouragement of others, to serve others, to worship God together, to draw near to God together. I mean, this is why we're meeting outside here today. The reason why we're meeting outside here today, I mean, we could have done live stream like we did before, but the reason why we're meeting here today is because we want to be together. We know how important that is. We want to be each other's lives. We want to encourage each other. When we're singing songs, you know, we're, we're encouraging each other through the singing of hymns, right? In, in Ephesians, we're told to, to speak to each other, right? To speak to, to each other in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. We need to be together. Now, this doesn't happen Sunday morning. Now, I, I don't want to take this verse and, and just say this is only Sunday morning. Because when else do we encourage one another? Small groups, right? Small groups are the intentional time where we assemble together for the encouraging of one another. And I've heard this many times, perhaps you have, that the the church is a a spiritual hospital, which is true, right? The church is a spiritual hospital. If Sunday mornings are are the spiritual hospitals, then the small groups are the medics in the battlefield. The small groups are where you go when you're injured in the midst of spiritual warfare and you need encouragement, you need strengthening. So we come together because we have that common high priest. Because we all have in common full, confident access to God. Now the writer here mes- mentions one, one other group of people. These are the people who make it a habit to forsake the assembling of believers. Now let me say right off the bat, right off the bat, this should not be applied to people who are staying home because of, of sickness. And I, it, it should not be applied to people who are staying home out of legitimate concerns for COVID. That's why we still have live streams. Because there are people in the live stream, people that I'm talking to right now, who are desiring to be with us, who want to be with us. And they're not able to. We should be reaching out to those people. But if you can be here, if you can be among believers and you choose to stay home on a Sunday morning or, or you find yourself being tempted to stay home from, from small groups, I just want to say that you will be depriving yourself from the gifts and blessings that God has provided through the church. You're effectively saying to God, I know you give blessings. I know you speak through the ministry of your people but I can get along without it. Thanks, God. I'm fine. We need the church. We need to be together. Especially, especially as Christ draws closer, right? Look at how he ends it. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Praise the Lord that Christ is coming. But at the same time, it's going to get hard. It is hard, isn't it? 
If you're not in church, who's going to give you the encouragement you need? Who's going to give you that wise counsel or that timely rebuke? This is where we go to remain steadfast, to hold fast to the hope, to stay the course. We come to church to draw to near to God and to encourage each other when lo- in love. And all that, all those actions, drawing near to God, drawing near in faith, um, uh, persevering in faith, uh, uh, um, uh, of encouraging each other in love, all those actions come from the privileges that we have in Christ. It comes from, that, from the fact that we have access to God, that we have a high priest who's, who is fully man and fully God, and he, and he intercedes for us on our behalf. How can we not act on that? How can we look at those privileges and be spiritually lethargic? Act on those privileges this week. Draw to God every day. You get up and you pray to God. You read his word. You spend time with him. Not because you have to, but because you get to. Because it is a privilege to do that. And you surround yourself with believers. And and if you don't have those privileges in, in Christ, if you don't know what it is to have direct access to God, to trust in the sacrifice of Christ and have your, your burdens of your sin weight, uh, lifted off your shoulders, if you don't know that, then I beg you to please talk to me or to anyone here. Contact us. We love to tell you about our gentle and humble Savior and that he calls you even now. He says, come, come to me and find rest. Trust in him today and enjoy his privileges today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these immense truths. We thank you for the exhortations we have here. Lord, and thank you for the confidence that we have to enter into your presence. Lord, I pray as we go out from here, as the service ends, as we go on with our Sundays and into our weeks, Lord, that those privileges would just be seeking so deep in our hearts that it would cause us to act. That we could not ignore them, but we would press press into them. Lord, I thank you for TBC, for the church that we have, for the for the for the friendships and the and and the faith that is evident here. Lord, I pray that you keep using TBC for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Please stand with us one last time. We're going to sing one more song that reflects on the truths we just heard. Um, I'd like to read, just as you stand up, um, I'd like to read just some of the lyrics that says,